That's a short little verse, isn't it? It's not so much the words that are in this verse that we want to look at today as much as the thought that is connected to what the Apostle Paul here refers to as living by the Spirit. Uh, that's sort of the kind of the thrust of this study, and I've been looking at the theology of the Holy Spirit now for a few weeks. Uh, I've been kind of immersing myself in all sorts of texts and all sorts of books. And uh, uh, let me tell you, I can't recommend if you want a book on the Holy Spirit to really cut your teeth with, you need to get Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's a finer uh, one-volume treatment on the Holy Spirit that I can recommend that is as accessible uh, for everyone, no matter what level of reading you're at. Uh, but Sinclair Ferguson has done just a tremendous job. I don't even know if we have it on the bookstore out there, but uh, we, we're sure to get it. But um, needless to say, as we look at a new year, uh, it's been just on my heart to just pray about what exactly to say today as we're facing 2018, all the uncertainties. Uh, we don't know what's coming. We don't know what a new year will hold in a sense. Uh, but, you know, I thought if there's one thing that I would want to preach on or, or to highlight or to just try to study together with you, that is uh, the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Because I think some obvious comments I think need to be made I think there's kind of two extremes when it comes to the Spirit. I think there's the extreme uh, emphasis or overemphasis on the Spirit of God by, you know, Pentecostal circles and things like that where, you know, basically it's the Trinity consists of the Spirit, the Spirit, and the Spirit, you know. Um, you know what I mean. But uh, there could be an overemphasis on the Spirit in one sense. But then there's also, on the other extreme of that, there's also uh, a tendency in the church to neglect uh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, where we undermine His influence, His activity, and His power in our lives. And much of that comes because we don't really necessarily know how to detect the activity of the Spirit. We don't know how to attribute the work of the Spirit uh, in our lives and how to rightly interpret that. And so I thought we should spend some time as we look at a whole new year of sanctification, because I tell you this, one thing that is definitely promised to us as 2018 approaches, is more trials, more challenges, more tests, more suffering, more valleys, you know. And in the same time, God, according to His promises, tells us that in the midst of those things, He also promises more strength, more power, more peace, more joy, more hope, because of the presence and the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so, you, you see that uh, in places like Romans chapter 5. I won't read the whole section to you. Um, but in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the Spirit of God has been given to us in the midst of all of our tribulations and trials and in the midst of our calling to persevere. And the purpose, of course, is so that God would prov- uh, produce character uh, in our lives and also so that he would produce hope in our lives. And now there is a precious grace of God there, hope. Uh, When you begin to lose hope, you begin to lose sight of your hope in the Christian life, then really the walls can start caving in upon you uh, because you have lost your spiritual vision uh, in your walk. And you can only see the immediate trials and the immediate circumstances that surround you. I hope that by the influence of the Spirit, we will once again lift up our eyes and gaze upon this life-changing hope that God imparts to us through His Spirit. So let me pray for us, and then we will, we will begin. Heavenly Father, we, we come before You, Lord, fear and trembling, Lord, in, in a sense that we know that in handling Your Word and in handling the subject of Your Spirit, we are on the most of sacred grounds, Lord, as we think about Your Holy Spirit, Your very presence among us, we ask, O oh God, that your spirit would have his freedom to move upon our lives, that he would be free to convict us and to change us and to empower us and to embolden us and to fill us uh, with the fullness of his presence in our lives so that we can uh, know what it means when Paul says to live by the spirit, to be led by the spirit and to have a life that is 
that is uh, characterized by the fruit of the Spirit as He manifests His activity in our lives. And so we begin, we, we ask that that would begin in our own hearts for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so the Spirit obviously brings up a question of what kind of walk do we have? Uh, Do we have a walk where we are walking, in a sense, according to our own strength, according to our own power? I can assure you that you will fall into that category. You will fall into that rut Uh, from time to time in your Christian life where you really lack the power of the Spirit of God and instead you have chosen to depend upon your own strength. And certainly there's a certain level of subjectivity there where, you know, um, I think that's kind of where the confusion really comes in is when is it my strength versus the Spirit's strength? When is it my own personal effort devoid of the Spirit of God in my life? And that's a that can be a really tricky dynamic uh, to, to, to try to unravel. And so hopefully by looking at the theology of the Spirit, uh, we can sort of begin to remind ourselves, not that I'm going to answer all the questions today because it's just too vast, but just to remind ourselves of some of the gracious influences of the Spirit of God in our lives that I think will help us to sort of focus our gaze upon the person and work of the Spirit again And uh, if you thought, you know, you came to a church, I don't know, maybe you're visiting or something like that, but you thought the preacher was going to give you just, you know, some resolutions to walk by. uh, Heritage Grace is a little different. Uh, We're studying pneumatology today, so welcome, you know. Um, But because the Spirit is so absolutely critical uh, to our spiritual well-being and to our sanctification, uh, but where does the work of the Spirit of God actually begin in our lives? Well, I have three points. Usually, I have three points, and today is no different. I have three points with probably about 15 uh, subpoints. <laughs> but the first point is sort of a, a simple point, and that is that the Spirit gives us life. I look at three different headings with the Spirit. The first one is that the Spirit gives us life, and there I sort of want to just kind of emphasize the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, but I think we should begin with just some simple orthodoxy as we think about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God, of course, is the third person of the Trinity. He was there at Creator as the Spiritus Creator, as the theologians call him. The Spirit has always been there with God throughout redemptive history. He has always accompanied God's redemptive activity. He has always been there striving, as it says in Genesis 5, striving with man in his sin, as Jesus said, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God is also the paraclete of God's people. He is the comforter of God's people. He imparts his presence in order to console us, to comfort us, to assure us, and to give us his grace. The Spirit of God is also the Spirit of common grace. You see his activity in the Old Testament at work at places where he is, like in Exodus 31, where he is gifting men with all sorts of natural skill and all sorts of universal wisdom, not necessarily pertaining to salvation. But you see the Spirit working all throughout Scripture in many, many different ways. He's also present uh, in God's redemptive judgments throughout the Old Testament. It is the Spirit of Yahweh that comes in judgment. Uh, you see that all over uh, when God pronounces judgment upon the nations. Uh, Ezekiel 11, for example, uh, in Isaiah 48, the Spirit of God is the one who is active in the midst of all of that. Uh, he is also the Spirit of the Messiah, He is the Spirit who anointed Jesus, the Messiah, for His redemptive mission. Uh, From Genesis to Revelation, the Spirit of God is also the revelator. He is prophesying. He is promising. He is predicting. He is revealing God's revelation to His prophets, to His apostles, to His people. The Spirit of God is also what we could call the consummator Spirit of God. He clo- As a matter of fact, he closes the canon of Scripture with a final eschatological invitation to come to know Christ. Um, this is God's Spirit that is given to us at regeneration. 
This is where his gracious activity begins. You know, the Spirit of God coming to us at regeneration begins our entire religious life. Uh, That's where our new birth happens. That is where we are awakened. That is when the Spirit imparts life to us, taking us out of a state of death into a state of life. And just like in creation, the Spirit of God is operating on the heart of the spiritually dead to bring forth life. Um, In terms of creation, remember the Apostle Paul connects the work of regeneration to creation. It's almost like an analogy between what happened in creation and what happens to each individual person whom God regenerates. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for example, he speaks about the God of creation who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's uh, uh, echoing back to Genesis chapter 1, of course. He says, this is the same God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Spirit of God, and that's, you know, obviously, ultimately referring to the new, new covenant work of the Spirit to, to uh, write God's law on our hearts, to change us into, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts, to change us and transform us. But it doesn't begin with the new covenant. Uh, the Spirit has always been connected with life. So, for example, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 14 Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. Ezekiel, as much as all the other prophets in the Old Testament texts where the spirit does this, that is really the foundation of the New Testament teaching on regeneration. Regeneration. All goes back to that when if, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, that he made us alive. That is going back to the Spirit's work that was promised in the Old Testament, of course. Uh, the Spirit, and to live by the Spirit, therefore, where Paul says that we live by the Spirit, begins with the Spirit's indelible mark upon our heart through regeneration as he takes us, it really transforms or, or transfers our ownership from the tyrant of sin to uh, the ownership of God. As a matter of fact, Paul reminds us that the Spirit's work in regeneration is also rooted in his sovereignty. Turn to Titus chapter 3 for me. Titus chapter 3, you see that there, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing monergistic grace, uh, not only the fact that by the Spirit of God, God grants us unmerited favor, but as we've talked about before, it's not just that He gives us grace unmerited, but really it's that He overcomes our demerit. We're in the red. It's not that we're neutral and we just need a little bonus. No, we're negative, and the Spirit overcomes that debt, and uh, He does that through His regenerative work. But look at Titus 3, verse 5. He says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And then these are instrumental prepositions. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. See that? Who He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that tremendous there? Now, notice Paul's words there in Titus. He says, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. And in one sense, you can say that those two phrases ultimately relate to one reality. What's the one reality? The new birth. It's regeneration. That's what he's talking about. But by using these two phrases, I think Paul emphasizes two aspects of the Spirit's work in our life. First, when he says washing of regeneration, there the emphasis is on the cleansing of our sin. So that when we are regenerated by God, when we are born again, there is a moral cleansing that happens. There is a definitive break with our sin. And furthermore, 
He also says that there is a renewal that takes place. So not just washing and regeneration. There's a washing, a cleansing, a consecrating. But then there's also a renewing. A renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so if you've ever doubted the Spirit's activity in your life, understand this. That it was the Spirit who washed you from your sins, number one. And it is the Spirit who is now renewing you, which is to say that the Spirit is the one who is credited with transforming you. So in other words, it's a transformative activity that the Spirit is engaged in here to do what? To conform us into the image of His own Son, Christ. We'll get back to that a little bit later, but it's amazing, isn't it? As mysterious and as, 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 uh, as, as puzzling at times as the doctrine of regeneration is, just the mystery behind all of it, even more mysterious is the person of the Spirit Himself. But one thing is absolutely clear. The Spirit of God gives us this life. Look at John chapter 3. Verse 5, obviously one of the classic passages on being born again. Jesus just said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. By the way, when he says being born of water and Spirit, he's not talking about two different births. He's talking about one birth, again, with two aspects. It's the same, almost a... uh, Almost the same parallel here to Titus. When he says water and spirit, he, he's speaking about the same dynamic. He's not talking about uh, uh, baptism and spiritual birth or something like that or natural birth um, or something like that. He's not. He's, he, this is echoing back to what uh, Ezekiel says uh, in Ezekiel 36 and in other places about just the, the, the whole concept of being washed by the Spirit, and that is how a person enters into the kingdom of God. But notice what it goes on to say in John 3, 6. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is his explanation as we are amazed by the phenomenon of regeneration. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a complete and total act of sovereignty, a complete and total act of, uh, of, of monergistic regeneration. In other words, the Spirit blows wherever He wants. And as uh, A.W. Pink once pointed out, sometimes the wind blows in different ways. For example, sometimes the wind is so fierce, it's like a hurricane, destroys everything in its path. At other times, maybe in a really hot Texas summer, right, you can barely detect even a leaf moving, right? But the wind is blowing. It may be imperceptible to you, but he does move. And uh, just think about the testimonies that reside in this room. Some of you have explosive testimonies, Damascus Road experiences, where it was a, it was a storm. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a thunderous, you know, type of event that took place in your life. And some of you were, you know, I was raised a Christian my whole life. I really didn't have one of those crazy conversion stories. I just kind of was you know, raised in a Christian home. I was homeschooled and you know, kind of strayed a little bit later in my life, but God got a hold of me and I'm born again. Okay, no, you know, can't make a Hollywood movie out of it, but, but it's regeneration. And the Spirit is credited with both dynamics. So the Spirit is absolutely the one who gives us spiritual life to begin with. Through the Spirit of God, God comes to dwell Within us, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, God comes to fellowship with us and to empower us to advance the mission of Christ on earth, Acts 1, 8 and following. But none of this happens unless God first quickens us by His Spirit, gives us regenerate life. But there's, there's another thing that if we can say regeneration is the foundation, that's the entry point, that is the starting point of all of God's gracious influences upon our hearts. It begins with regeneration, but it doesn't end there. The next thing, therefore, is that the Spirit not only gives us life, but the, the Spirit gives us power. Power. Now we get more into the experiential aspect of the Spirit. Um, Turn with me in, the, in your Bibles to Romans 15. 
I was tempted to actually preach on this verse, Romans 15, verse 13. A mighty little verse there. This is part of Paul's initial closing remarks to the Romans. It's interesting how in the book of Romans he kind of closes the letter twice. (laughs) Well, he begins his closing remarks. You've heard speakers like that, right? I mean, you've heard preachers do that. Well, finally, and then half an hour later there's another finally. So pastors are in good company who do that because Paul says basically finishing up here, but then he goes on to chapter 13, 16. So, uh, but he says here, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What's remarkable about that power is that if you jump down in Romans there to verse 19, The power, the dunamis of the Spirit is mentioned again. This time it's in connection with supernatural manifestations of the Spirit in terms of miracles. See, in other words, the same power that works to raise the dead. And and, and there for us, that power may be may be a, a, a very, very uh, a vivid and, and extremely graphic and, and, and powerful and truly um, miraculous. But in, in a sense, there is no difference between the quality of the power that raises the dead, i.e. through the Holy Spirit, and the power that gives hope to your heart. It's the same power. It's the same activity. And therefore, all of these Christian graces, hope, joy, peace, brothers and sisters, these are not just sort of abstract ideas or they're not just sort of sentimentalities these are not just little trite little greetings on a christmas card i mean these are christian graces Uh, this is what we need to make it through a new year this is what we need our whole life is to be filled with hope and joy and peace and that comes to us according to paul here by the power of the holy spirit so Hasn't your heart ever sort of rose with joy or arisen with peace or been flooded with hope and assurance? You need not doubt for one second that that is the Spirit influencing your life. See, I think sometimes what we're waiting for is some sort of external manifestation. We need to sort of feel something, right? Or else we cannot attribute anything to the work of the Spirit. But no, you may be completely devoid of feeling and yet know with total certainty, hopefully biblical certainty and assurance, that you have hope. uh, That your trials are producing in you hope and that knowledge is by the power of the Spirit of God in your life. That is a gracious influence that the Spirit would impart to us such truth as we think about this power, I think it's, it shows us just how eminently practical the power of the Spirit really, really is. As we think about how does the Spirit enable us? How does the Spirit empower us? How does the Spirit fill us so that we can live holy lives? I think we need to see a couple connections. So turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, because there uh, the Apostle Paul makes several connections. Like, well, I'm starting Thessalonians, Lord willing, next week. I can't wait to get to this verse because it's such a precious section of Scripture here. But in verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. He says, Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It's a very powerful sovereignty text there. He says, through sanctification by the Spirit and, look at the connection, faith in the truth. And then he says, it was for this that he called you through the gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible text. But notice the connection between Spirit and faith. So how does the Spirit work in our lives to bring us these graces? I would say the Spirit works and operates in conjunction with faith. There's nothing more powerful than to mingle the work of the Spirit with faith. Of course. 
And so if you thought it was some sort of cryptic, mysterious, sort of hidden knowledge, this higher truth that I was going to impart to you today, uh, the, the message today is very simple. Have faith and you will have more of the Spirit's work. Believe, trust, and you will see the Spirit work and operate in your life and on your heart. But there's another connection if you didn't miss it there. It says, through the sanctification by the Spirit and faith, notice what the faith is in. It is not faith in yourself. It is not faith in emotion. It is not faith in experience. It is faith in the truth. And we know that that truth is the gospel because of verse 14. He called you through our gospel. And so our faith has to be firmly rooted in the truth. Are we surprised? We shouldn't be because in John chapter 14, verse 17, we are told that the Spirit is the Spirit of what? Truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Which means to say that one of His inherent qualities is that He is truth. He is truthful. That He dispenses the truth, reveals the truth, gives the truth, possesses the truth. Blesses the truth. Isn't that great? Not only does he possess the truth, know the truth, and is the truth himself, but see the generosity of the Spirit here. He also gives us the truth. Look at John 14.26, or I could read it to you. John 14.26, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And then John, same author, same inspired writer, says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, because in this context right here, we would have to say, well, this is talking to the apostles, and that the apostles would be inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Okay, fair enough. I would say, by extension, this relates to all of us who are regenerated by the Spirit of God, because there in 1 John chapter 2, it says that we have an anointing from the Holy One, the Spirit of God, who teaches us all things. It doesn't mean that the Spirit makes you inspired. It doesn't mean that the Spirit makes you omniscient. That's not the dynamic. The dynamic is, is that He will lead you into all essential truth about who God is, what salvation is about, how to be saved. In other words, you will have the You will have the truth concerning the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The beautiful thing about the Spirit here in the theology of John is when Jesus says concerning the Spirit, John 14, 16, He will be with you forever. Isn't that remarkable? Just as the Spirit is operating through monergistic regeneration, And through the power to mortify our sins and really through repentance and faith. The Spirit can also be said to continually vivify us. Now, listen to this term here because this is a term that Calvin uh, really popularized. Uh, During, in in, in Calvin's day, uh, the word vivification was already operative, but it was used in sort of a, more of a mystical sense, I think, and he corrected it and said, well, he wanted to define it a little bit different, and he does in his institutes, and uh, he talks about it there. But this is what Paul says concerning the Spirit's ongoing work in our life to continually vivify us, to give us spiritual communion with God and devotion to God. This is what he says. He says, vivification is the desire to live in a holy and devoted manner, a desire that arises out of the new birth. As, it, as, as if it were said that man dies to himself so that he may begin to live to God. Simple theology. I don't know what everybody's scared of Calvin for. He's, all he's saying is that the Spirit of God gives you regeneration and then he empowers you, he vivifies you to live a holy life. That's all he's saying. This is totally in keeping with what Jesus himself says Uh, in terms of the life-giving power of the Spirit, or even what we can call the life-giving prophet of the Spirit, because he says, you remember this verse? Have you forgotten this verse? John 6, 63. 63, you had to pull deep to go get this verse, right? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh 
profits nothing. I love that. And then he goes on to say, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. I spent, I had a stack of commentaries out for that verse. I went back into my John commentaries. I pulled out all these commentaries and just flipping through them like, I don't know, like a, a deck of cards or something. Nobody wanted to talk about what that meant. The best thing that I found was D.A. Carson, who gave me a sentence. But I think it was the right sentence. He says that when Jesus says his, his words are spirit and life, he says what he means is that they are the product of the life-giving spirit, i.e. the Holy Spirit. Wow. And I say, I think I agree. <laughs> Because I think that's right. I think when Jesus was saying his words are spirit and life, what he's saying is that his words are in such connection, they are so inseparable to the activity of the Holy Spirit that in his words resides the power of the Spirit himself. They are one. The Spirit is a life giver. He is a revealer. He continually vivifies us. He gives us life. That life comes through us by these Christian graces, peace, joy, love, power, the fruit of the Spirit. Turn there, Galatians chapter 5, beginning of verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit, which, understand this, um, as many times as I've heard this quoted wrong, <laughs> uh, it doesn't change the truth. <laughs> you can quote it wrong all you want, because it's not the fruits of the Spirit. Right? Plural. Just like it's not the book of Revelations. Right? I wish we had multiple Revelations. <laughs> but it's the book of Revelation. And it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits. Why is that important? Because the Apostle Paul is pointing to one distinct work of the Spirit. He is pointing to the, the Spirit's evidence in our life. What is the evidence of the Spirit? Well, this is the evidence. It consists of Christian virtue, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Oh, guys, sometimes don't we struggle with kindness? And ladies are like, if only you knew what the ladies struggle with. I understand. But sometimes men, we can be so harsh. We can be, you know, just brutes, you know. We struggle with being kind, goes on goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Have you ever exhibited self-control in your life where you knew, you made a conscious decision, I will not have that last slice of pizza? You laugh, but you know in your mind you're bordering on gluttony. And I can't have that last slice of pizza. That self-control, you need not doubt, is the work of the Spirit in your life. Do you believe that? Or do you believe it was just your choice? It's just a random combination of molecules and gases and energies and, you know, protons or whatever in your brain and just chemicals and then you exercised your own wisdom to do that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that that self-control, when it's done from a Christian sanctified uh, position, that is the evidence of the Spirit in your life. That's amazing to me. Same thing with goodness, gentleness. This is all the attributes of Christ. And that's what the Spirit produces in us. Now I want to throw a monkey wrench into the whole equation. You ready? And that is because I think what happens is as we ponder the work of the Spirit in our lives and we ponder that the work of the Spirit is wrought in us and that His power, as Paul uses the word, power of the Spirit, that the power of the Spirit often in our lives doesn't look very powerful. Can anyone say, Amen? It just doesn't look very powerful to me. If I look back... I see all sorts of checkered problems, sin, depression, failure, condemnation, you know, laziness, spiritual slothfulness, you know, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to remember something, and that is that the recipient of the power does not infringe upon the power. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, just to illustrate this from one perspective, okay? There is a, this is a very helpful verse for sanctification. Very, this helped me a lot. This is not, get, this is not to get us off the hook, okay? Not at all. But it's to get us to understand the relationship of the power of the Spirit in our lives when it doesn't look very powerful. Paul accounts for that. In Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 26, the operative term here is weakness, right? What is the opposite of power? Weakness. And look at what he says. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us or helps our what? Weakness. Singular. I feel like I'm pointing out a lot of singulars today. But notice Paul does not say he helps us with our weaknesses. Did you, did you catch that? He doesn't say he helps us with our weaknesses. What are some weaknesses that you have? Well, you can say laziness, lust, uh, anger, uh, impatience, whatever. Those are weaknesses, but those are not the weakness that he's talking about. When he says weakness, what he is talking about is not so much the quantity of our weaknesses, but the quality of our condition. See, you and I, even though we have been regenerated by God, we've been sanctified by God, even though we have been justified by God, yet as he has taught all the way through going, stretching all the way back to chapter 6 of the book of Romans, he is teaching that we are still in this body of death. And that there is a sin principle that is still operative in our lives. And that makes us, for the present age, weak. We carry around a certain weakness. And that's the trick. That's the rub. That's what we want to overcome. And what we've told, what we're given here is this glorious promise. The Spirit helps us. Praise God. He doesn't leave us in our weakness. He actually helps us in our weakness. How does he do that? Look what he says. For we do not know how to pray. Now, this is a crucial phrase. As we should. Remember, for years, I used to go to this convalescent home and minister to these beautiful elderly saints of God and also evangelize the the (laughs) non-saints. But there was this Christian woman that I would talk to. I, I don't know how much she actually even knew I was there talking to her, but she, she would still talk to me somehow. We would communicate. And every time I would ask her something spiritual, like, did you read uh, your Bible today? Her answer would always be the same. Oh, yes, but not as much as I should. Did you pray this week? Oh, yes, but not as much. Did you go to church? Oh, yes, but not as much as I should. It would always end with not as much as I should. Not as much. And I would constantly be, you know, encouraging. Oh, that's okay. You know, know. but she was right. We don't do, we don't do holy things as we should. See that? Now plop anything in, into that word pray. Substitute that word for anything. We do not study as we should. We do not evangelize as we should. We do not pray as we should. We do not sing as we should. We do not obey as we should. We do not train our children as we should. We do not submit to our husbands as we should. We do not lead our wives as we should. We do not do anything as we should because we are in a state of weakness. There is an inherent deficiency within us. And this is where the Spirit comes in and He complements our weakness by doing what? By empowering us to do what is pleasing to God. What does the hymn say? He says, um, it says that we are, that we are sorry for our poor returns unto God, right? That, that something like that, that, that our, our returns are so poor that they're so weak. And the Spirit is there. Look at what it says. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches the hearts, verse 27 is just maddening exegetically when you try to splice what is going on there. The exegesis of verse 27 is just impossible. But not impossible, but it's just, it's difficult. But this is what he's saying. He, God, searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And that's why what is unintelligible to us, namely groanings too deep for for words, God understands them perfectly because the spirit, the mind of the spirit is perfectly known to God. And therefore, when the spirit intercedes for us, he does so according to the will of God. Wouldn't you want to say that about every single aspect of your Christian life? It is according to the will of God. And yet, we are told here that we have this divine enabler, that the Spirit of God comes to our aid. That's why he is our paraclete. The word paraclete literally means one who comes alongside of you. And he comes alongside of us to pray, to study, to obey, to seek, to preach, to share, to fellowship. He does these things to strengthen us according to God's will because according to God's will is synonymous with the pleasure of God. It brings God pleasure when our works are done in harmony with His will. So the same thing could be said about studying the Word, resisting temptation, pressing into worship, meditating on God's Word, serving in the local church with the strength that the Spirit supplies. God is so gracious to us in doing this for us. I have so much more to say about this, but the Apostle Paul took it very serious that the Spirit is a provision that cannot be underestimated. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. You see this practically in other aspects of our lives, and here, and just in keeping with the theme of prayer, um, that's not by design, by the way, because we have a prayer meeting tonight. It's just the way it worked out in my studies. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, we see this again. You know, the Apostle Paul says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, basically everything he's gone through up to this point, being imprisoned and preaching the gospel and, and all of that. He says, it will work out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Also note the fact that there, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there being called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's a very uh, rare, actually a rare combination. You also find it in First, uh, First Peter chapter 1, I think it's in verse 11, talking about the Spirit of Christ that was within the prophets. But that's a rare instance. Isn't it amazing? How can the Holy Spirit be called the Spirit of Jesus Christ if, Spirit is, if Jesus is not divine? That would be utter blasphemy to say that the holy spirit belongs to jesus it's amazing i just i let the gravity of that trinitarian uh, theology and the deity of christ just i just wanted to enjoy you know because it's very very explicit there but he's saying here that the provision of the spirit was such that it was working in tandem with the prayers of the saints, so that when we pray, the Spirit works in conjunction with our prayer, and we need not doubt it. Imagine that you went into prayer for that brother, that sister, in that prayer meeting. Imagine you went into prayer with the full awareness that the Spirit is coming with you. And that he's attending your prayers, helping your prayers, blessing your, your prayers, and using your prayers to accomplish the will of God. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And again, if you look at another Romans passage, we have a couple more things. I thought today, well, I'm going to keep the church a little bit long, but it's so cold outside. Where are you going to go anyway? <laughs> Stay in the warmth, you know? Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, the all-important prepositional phrase is according to the Spirit. Um, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me how many times when you're studying the doctrine of the Spirit in the New Testament, how many times the Spirit is found in a prepositional phrase. 
by the Spirit, in the Spirit, with the Spirit, through the Spirit, according to the Spirit. He's all, he loves to reside. He loves to dwell in prepositional phrases. I think that was part of the pactum salutis. He says, okay, but if I can dwell in the prepositional phrases, I'll do it. Because that's where he's at all the time. It's, it's marvelous. And again, I even wrote it in my notes this time, despite the absence of coverage in the commentaries, unhappy face. <laughs> this critical phrase, according to the Spirit, is instrumental. And it suggests that the Spirit is a divine enabler, this time epistemically, in our mind, on the things that we think about. He conditions us and He governs our worldview, just like the flesh conditions and governs the worldview of the unregenerate. That's what the Spirit loves to do. Ah, Talking about the Spirit, brothers and sisters, this is to say nothing of the Spirit's work in mobilizing the church for world missions, of gifting the church for service, of empowering the church for preaching, and His restraining influence in the world. But there is one last point, and that is this. The Spirit gives us life. The Spirit empowers us, helps us, however you want to phrase it. And the last thing is that the Spirit gives us hope. Not just because He already said hope by the power of the Spirit, but what I'm talking about in terms of the Spirit giving us hope is that the Spirit gives us eschatological hope. If you go back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I pointed out two things, and there is the connection between the Spirit and faith, that's number one. Number two, the connection between the Spirit and truth, that's number two. And number three, the connection between the Spirit and eschatology. And here, predominantly you're talking about personal eschatology. Notice what it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. It was for this He called you through our gospel Here's an all-important purpose clause. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the Spirit doing in our lives right now? Well, He's conforming us. What is He conforming us to? He is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is talking about when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that Though the outer man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And that what is, in, what is at work in our lives, in our hearts, is an exceeding weight of glory. So what is the Spirit doing in the Christian right now? He is producing an exceeding weight of glory through something like your body breaking down. How many people in here are suffering from physical things in your body? Okay, let me put two hands up for me. And the comfort and the consolation is that that, in the midst of that, that is the Spirit working in you, producing what He calls a weight of glory, which is a, what He's saying there is that the weight of glory is literally a reality. And the reality is, is that through your trials, through them, it is as if the Spirit is continually depositing into your future glory. Oh, it changes everything. The more you fade, the more you gain when the Spirit is working in you by His strength and by His power. But you see the eschatological work of the Spirit not just to to work in us, particularly with our suffering, our human suffering. But all the way around, the Holy Spirit is working and operating eschatologically in our lives. Uh, I'm going to make you turn to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 32, just to see that ultimately we know that when the Spirit of God resides in you, when the Spirit of God has regenerated you, has given you new life, you've been born again, it is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a new creation. The Spirit is working upon us in order to prepare us and to fit us for the new creation. We are the initial deposit of the new creation. The new creation begins within us. You are evidence. Every time you see a Christian, you should think in your mind, there is a new world coming. 
And this Christian that sits in front of me is exhibit A, that there is a whole new universe that God is going to bring. There's a new heavens, a new earth that is coming. And we are the proof. It's so remarkable. Look at Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field, and the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness, confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. Don't you long for that? When you read something like that, you know, it used to be a time where I would read an Old Testament passage, I'd be so perplexed. I'd be like, okay, what's this talking about, like Israel and you know, Hezbollah and what's going to happen over there? But, but. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not look for the news headlines. It's not that you know, the U.S. moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Therefore, our hope is almost, it's, it's almost here. <laughs> you cannot play that, you know, pin the tail on the Antichrist game and get what Isaiah is talking about. It's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that through the work of the Spirit and through His outpouring, He is preparing us for a new creation, for a new heavens, a new earth. In a sense... Jesus is merely echoing what Isaiah is promising here, right? Isaiah 32, 18. My people will live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places is no different than Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. No difference. I go to prepare a place for you. And the Spirit reminds us that in this world, we have no lasting city. And the Spirit reminds us that He Himself is the pledge of permanence. He Himself is the pledge of paradise. Um, This is what Paul says, after all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 you can see how many texts are just... The the theology of the Spirit is so comprehensive in Scripture. Uh, Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 1.21. He says, now... 121 in 2 Corinthians, he says, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us his Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. That word pledge in the, in the Greek, erabon, literally means a down payment. It is a deposit of a future exchange. It is a down payment of the fact that in the future God will procure us to himself fully and completely. He is the down payment. He is the deposit. He is the pledge. He is the promise of that. So glorious. Absolutely glorious. Well, I would say one last thing in terms of this eschatological hope, and for that, turn to Romans chapter 8 again, and I promise this will be my final, (laughs) final, the final, final for the day. I had to go here. It was just impossible not to go here as we're thinking about just the eschatological expectation that the Spirit of God gives us when He comes to reside in our hearts. He becomes a pledge of the future for us. And this is all spelled out for us in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, because in reality, and what's so amazing about that, is that this, 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 this whole thing is sort of echoed in creation. Literally all creation is yearning for the Spirit's work that has begun in us to be consummated. Isn't that a remarkable... Look at verse 18. I consider that the suffering of the present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, For anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What an amazing way. It's a personification of the, of the created order. Think about that. 
He, he personifies the creation so that we understand the nature of the times. He's saying that the whole cosmos, the whole universe, the whole world is literally anxious. It's like the whole world is having anxiety and panic attacks over the fact that there are Christians in the world. And and what that means is one day, even the creation itself will be finally delivered from all the chaos that we see all around us. Praise God. Um, He says... In verse 20, this is all God's plan from the beginning. He says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't bring this on upon itself. Eden did not bring this upon itself, but God did it. He ordained it because of him who subjected it in what? In hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And we can say that right now. Until now, the world is in labor pains. The travail, it's the, the, the sound is deafening if you have ears to hear and eyes to see. It doesn't matter how nice things may appear in your personal little life. You know what I just read on the way to church today? I read a headline that said they found a guy in Houston who was up in a building uh, right before the New Year's celebration that's going to take place there. Guess what they found? They found a whole room full of ammunition up from a real high room where he could oversee the whole crowd. Guess what he was getting ready to do? The world is travailing. And the world does a really good job of sort of trying to mask that travailing, that labor pain. But the world is in major travail. The world groans, it suffers, it's awaiting, it's anxious. Because this is not the world that God intended in that sense. Relax all you Calvinists. That'll creep up on you later about lunchtime. Not only this, we also know that ourselves, he says, having the first fruits of the Spirit. See the Spirit's involvement there with the new creation? It says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of the sons, as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, so there's the operative word, we wait eagerly for it. The more and more we see the earth travail with pain and labor, the more and more we should be eager in our waiting. The more and more we see the, the the, the more and more we see uh, 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 trouble in our lives, the more we should trust. The more depravity that rises all around us, the more dependence and devotion we should render to God. Likewise, the more aware we are of our own lack of power, our own weakness, as we talked about the more we should rely on the Spirit's power, the more that we are influenced by our culture or even the condemnation of our own heart, the more we should seek the gracious influence of God's Spirit in our lives. There's no other way that we will go from being fearful to being fearless, from being anxious to being carefree, from being despondent to delight, and ultimately from weakness to power. You know, the, the concern for a new year is always your walk with God. Oh, it's not how you begin, brothers and sisters. It's how you finish. And the way that we're going to move forward is going to be with a utter dependence on the Spirit of God in our lives. We don't, depend on, we don't depend on just merely our routines, our externals, our habits. We don't depend on just the fact that we are around other Christians and hopefully by osmosis, hopefully we'll catch something. No, it's a, it's a true, genuine communion with God where we depend upon His Spirit to help us to overcome in the present evil age. That's the way it has to happen. And the principle is inside of you. That's a whole other sermon, and so I better exercise self-control. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your heavenly spirit. We thank you for the fact that we have been giving such precious precious promises. Ah, your spirit is here to help us, to convict us, to empower us, to enable us. And you desire to see more of the spirit's fullness in our lives. And so, oh God, we pray as much as it is possible in our present weakness, may we, by the power of your Spirit, be pleasing to you. May we press in to your kingdom and may we, by faith, trust in your promises and rely on the strength that you give us for all of our troubles and trials and as well at the same time to view our blessings the way we should from the hand of a gracious God who has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a promise. Magnify the work of Your Spirit in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.